Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Welcome back to the important part, everybody. We are here with episode two of a three-part series. This one is with Ben Carlson, and it is on, again, the retail investor. This one is focusing more on resources and different topics and ways that investors can think about trading and investor psychology. And Ben Carlson is a wonderful guest for this topic. Ben is the Director of Institutional Asset Management at Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's the author of four books, the co-host of the Animal Spirits podcast, and a very active blogger with a blog called A Wealth of Common Sense. In 2017, he was named to the Investment News 40 Under 40 list of top financial advisors. With that, let's get to the interview. Ben, welcome to the important part. Thanks for having me. So I want to start, for anybody who does not know you, tell us, in your own words, tell us about yourself. You've been doing institutional money management for a long time, uh, but you also manage money for individuals. You have a blog called A Wealth of Common Sense. You host an Animal Spirits podcast. Both of those, I would say, cover topics for more regular people, but but give us the lowdown in, in your own words what you focus on. Yeah, I, I spent most of my career working for endowments and foundations and pensions, and I was sort of the investment person for friends and family that would come to me and ask questions and I always thought, like, how do I take this this jargony stuff that we have in the finance world and make it easier for people in my own life to understand the regular people, quote unquote. And that's why I started my blog just to just to put this stuff in plain English, help people understand it better. And I've been writing the blog for about ten years. I've written a couple books, and and yeah, I do the podcast. And, and my goal is to take a lot of the stuff that seems complex and hard to understand and make it easier for people to 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 get and. And I think that's actually resonated more with financial professionals than I ever thought. Too, I thought I was writing for a regular audience, but a lot of financial professionals are having the same problems explaining this stuff to their clients. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think sometimes it's it's overly complicated, right? And we'll get into what some of that is later. But along that same vein, you talk a lot about the value of simplicity. You write a lot about the value of simplicity. Less is more. I'll I'll paraphrase that into don't overcomplicate it, right? Just for complication's sake. And our audience at SoFi in particular is a lot of individual investors. It runs the gamut age-wise. There's younger, brand new investors up to people that have been working for a long time, but a lot of people who are not in this industry, so not exposed to it the way that maybe you or I have been. Talk to them about the value of keeping it simple. Well, I think it's it's actually a little harder to keep it Simple because like there's the old phrase that investing is simple but not easy. Mm-hmm. Like the, the financial markets are very complex. Understanding how the economy works and the different levels that get pulled and what if this happens, when does this happen? And it's it's really hard to understand and it's very complicated. But I don't think that a complicated problem like the financial markets requires a complicated solution. And often I think, you know, just simplifying and having less is more. And and I think for most people, what that means is just having some simple rules in place to guide your actions. Because there's a million different things you can invest in these days. I I, subs- I subscribe to the fact that there's never been a better time to be an individual investor. There's all these different products you have. You have you have dozens of different accounts you can open at different places. And and 
strategies that are available that were only available to institutions or hedge funds in the past that can now be bought in ETF wrapper, you know, for pennies on the dollar for cost. And it's, it's great, but there's this paradox of choice where it makes it really hard to narrow down, well, what should I invest in? And, I, and people tend to get overwhelmed making that first decision of just looking at the board and well, what, what, what should I buy? I have all these stocks, all these funds. So I think for most people, the, the easiest way to simplify is just to define what you will and won't invest in. And for most people, I think it's, it comes down to figuring out the stuff that, you know what, I know that I can invest in this sort of stuff, but I don't need to, to reach my goals. And I think that's the hard part for most people is just being a bouncer to their own portfolio and keeping the riffraff out. Oh, I like that. Being a bouncer to your own portfolio. Yeah. I talk a lot about just even the news that's available, right? We have so much information available at our fingertips and you get tricked into the idea of thinking that as soon as a new piece of information or data comes in, that you're supposed to do something about it. And you are not supposed to do something about every single thing that you hear or read. And there's also a lot of what I would call maybe cocktail party conversation about, you know, I'm invested in such and such and people thinking that they should be doing the same and emulate what somebody else is doing. And in reality, the only right way to do it is your way. And whatever you want to invest in, whatever your goals are and what matches those goals are really the only way to approach it. And I think, you know, you mentioned financial advisors before or financial professionals. I'm going to, I'm going to use financial advisors as a more specific subset of that, but, but let's cover that. Cause I think that's, that's kind of an elephant in the room for both financial advisors and individuals, right? Do we need a financial advisor? At what point do you go get a financial advisor and what kind of value do they bring? Where does it, at what point can you stop the DIY right? And, and do you need more advice? Or maybe maybe you can DIY the entire way through. But give me your take on what are the real drawbacks? What are the real advantages? And when does somebody need an actual advisor? A, a lot of times it comes down to uh, a life event or the need or desire to outsource or just the uh, wanting to work with an expert. So I'll give you a few examples. So I think for a lot of people, especially we have the stat is, I think, between now and 2030, 10,000 baby boomers are retiring every day. And I think a lot of those baby boomers that we talked to in the wealth management space were fine accumulating assets over their career. They saved in a 401k or an IRA or a brokerage account, or they they sold shares in a business and they have money. And accumulating wealth was is not easy for everyone, but for a lot of that cohort that has money, it was it was that was relatively simple, right? You save on a regular basis, you dollar cost average in, you have a diversified portfolio, you probably made some money over the last 40 years. But then you get to this point in your life where it all reverses and, okay, I'm not working anymore. I have no income coming in. I'm not saving. It's time to spend it down. It's time to figure out what's inflation going to be, what are my healthcare costs going to be. And that kind of stuff can be overwhelming. What are my insurance needs? And if you are uh, a spouse that has been doing all the financial planning for your own family, you have a, another person in your life or a family that maybe they don't pay as much attention to it and you want to make sure someone has their back. And so I think a lot of that sort of stuff comes into play where you go. I've had my hands in the steering wheel and I think I could probably manage the money just fine, but I'm looking for an expert to help me plan this next phase of my life. So I think the the life cycle stuff is a big part of it. And others just, there's certain areas of your life where you're willing to outsource because you don't have the time or inclination to do it and you just want to have someone else do it for you. That's what I do with my lawn care. I don't, ha I don't have the, <laughs> the time or the desire to work on the lawn and the gardens and all that stuff. So I have someone else do it for me, even though I probably could do it myself. 
Yeah. Well, and and I think that plays into investor psychology too, right? Because one of the reasons you might get a financial advisor is because you realize or you've been told that you're just emotional about your own money. I know I'm emotional about my own money. Everybody is. We can pretend not to be and we can claim to be as objective as possible. But the reality is that you are going to be more emotionally attached to your own money than you are somebody else's money. So getting an advisor can be an advantage in that realm for sure. But I want to talk about investor psychology because that's a theme that comes up in your work a lot as well. I think about it a lot. I talk about sentiment a lot in my commentary because you can t- you can look at the data, you can look at cycles, you can look at stocks. There's also this invisible hand of psychology and sentiment that comes into play that you can't predict. And it's something that will always be there no matter how sophisticated of an investor you are. So Let's talk about the the big principles in your mind that an investor should think about when they're thinking about investor psychology. And then second, how can individual investors who are doing it themselves manage their own emotions? The psychological component to me is is just about everything when it comes to investing. And, and I spent a lot of my early schooling and, and master's degree and all that stuff, learning the textbook theories. And, and I think that stuff is important in this space. But the more I look back on it, the more I wish I would have done more psychology studies because understanding humans and the and the way humans respond to certain incentives is such a huge part about how the markets function. And I think a lot of times the market seems so confusing and backwards at, at times, right? When when things are happening. And remember when when COVID hit and and all this stuff was happening and it looked like the world was coming to an end and, and everything, everyone was pessimistic and the market is taking off and going crazy. And so many people were beating their head against the wall going, how can how can this be that the markets are going up we have all this bad stuff going on. And I think understanding that, especially in the short term, the, the market that it doesn't always necessarily have to make sense because humans are driving it. And I think if you if you step back and think of all the the crazy decisions you've made in your life or you've seen other people make, that just sometimes we don't, as a species, make a lot of sense, right? Mm-hmm. Individually, especially, and, and sometimes collectively as well. But I think understanding that stuff, things like the herd mentality, I think the, the hardest times to really keep your wits about you is when there's a huge boom or there's a huge bust, right? Because that's the time that no one really wants to hear reasonable financial advice. When things are going well and you see other people getting rich, I think that's a really hard, especially like late 2020, early 2021. Warren Buffett has this quote where like one of the reasons that the markets go crazy is because it's really hard to see your neighbor who's dumber than you getting richer than you. And I think (laughs) like, right, which sounds kind of degrading, but it's true. This happens all the time where you see someone uh, make a lucky trade or or take make a huge investment in something they probably shouldn't have and they and they make a bunch of money and you go this mm-hmm. doesn't you know how is this person getting rich you know and I think that's when you can really lose your head and alternatively when when it seems like the market is going down every day in a bear market and and it's it's just everything that you you thought touched turned to gold now is going the opposite direction and and everything you own is is going down you, you know you have the opposite feelings and it's just kind of like get me out i can't and i think understanding that the pendulum swings really far in both directions it, and it kind of always will that's one of the really hard things to master as an investor is keeping your temperament relatively stable throughout those kind of periods we can all hope that we are not the dumb neighbor, right? I mean, I'd like to be the one getting richer, but I just hope that my neighbors don't talk about me as the, <laughs> the right, dumb yes. one. <laughs> um, okay, so how do we identify, and I have I have my own short answer to this, but how do we identify periods where we might be more susceptible to that 
psychology driving us rather than logic driving us. So one of the, what I mean by that is one of the things that I look at a lot, um, some of those sentiment indices, right? You can look at consumer sentiment, everything like that. But when they're at extremes where one is completely overtaking the other, I feel like that's a time that's ripe for everybody to be driven more by psychology and emotion rather than actual logic. And you'd probably make decisions based on just what the feeling and the tone in the market is. That's a good point because I think one of the lessons people learned that was wrong in the 2008 crisis is people started to see a, cra- a top or a bottom everywhere, right? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the, the, the bottom happened. We, we always anchor to these, these points, the really low point or the really high point. And I think after the 2008 crisis, people were calling for double dip recessions and the next crash is coming and this one's going to be even worse than 2008. And I think a lot of people don't realize that most of the time we're somewhere in the middle, right? To your point, like the extremes don't happen very often because they are extremes. And, and I think if you're constantly looking for this is the top or this is the bottom or or trying to look for turning points, most of the time the the herd and the trend is actually right, which is hard to wrap your head around because you see the herd can take you off a cliff at the wrong times and everyone has the herd mentality and the FOMO and all this stuff. And that's the hard part to wrap your head around as an investor is that most of the time, the, the market itself is right. And the peop, the collective people who are making up the market are right. But there are times when people just take it too far. And, and yeah, I, I think to your point, the extremes is is when you really have to keep your wits about you. And it's probably getting harder than ever to to understand those. You mentioned the sentiment thing. I think it's harder than ever to to measure these things because so many people have an opinion now and so many people can follow and track the data. Whereas two or three decades ago, it was much harder to follow this stuff on a tick-by-tick basis and minute-by-minute basis. And I think people's emotions are swinging even even further and wider these days uh, from being bullish and bearish. And sometimes people say they're bearish, but they're fully invested, right? And so I, I think these these things are almost getting harder to, to to gauge. And to your point, it's it's at those really extreme moments where it probably matters the most. Yeah. So the other thing, you know, momentum investing, I think is something, and I'm sort of going off the, off my topic list even right now, but momentum investing, I think is something that a lot of retail or individual investors take part in, whether they know it or not. There's, there's a movement, there's this sort of, again, the invisible hand, or maybe the tide is rising and everything seems like it's going up and you want to jump on the bandwagon. And that's okay because momentum investing does work to some degree, right? There's a lot of technicals in that and things, an object in motion will remain in motion. The tough part about momentum investing is that it works until you hit the inflection point. And the inflection point is the toughest thing to call. And that's where I think things do get to an extreme. The inflection point is usually everything got a little overbought. I think we probably hit that point about the end of July of this year. Everything was a little bit overbought. We were in a period where the environment didn't really make sense to be overbought. So then we saw this orderly reversal and we're, we're still sort of in this orderly reversal. But the momentum piece of it, if you can just speak to that for a second, because I think the other thing that that a lot of individual investors fall victim to is the day trading mentality. And that can be very momentum-based. If you are in this idea or this habit of moving your money around on a daily or even weekly basis, you're constantly chasing something. Right, the, investing in the rearview mirror. The thing is, if you have a, a rules-based momentum strategy, you're probably gonna do okay where you take all the emotion out of it and you just follow a set of rules and you're gonna invest in this based on the trend and based on the numbers and the direction. But most people, especially individual investors who are following trends are, are chasing trends in reverse and they're looking at three and five year returns to make their mm-hmm. decisions, right? This this mutual fund has done well over the last two or three years. I'm going to invest in it. And it's a different kind of 
momentum. Because it is true that, you know, empirically studies show that stuff that has been going up for a little while longer, at least, is going to continue to go up. And, and that's hard because it, we're dealing with investor reactions, over and under reactions and all these things. But unless you have a rules-based framework to invest in that manner, it's going to come back to bite you at some point, right? Because the stuff that's doing really well can't, the trees don't grow to the sky and it can't last forever. So I think that that's a hard piece for people to understand the difference between a rules-based momentum or trend-following strategy and I'm driving in the rearview mirror and looking at what just did well and I really wish I would have invested in it and now I'm going to invest in it just for the hopes that it's going to match that again. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then you buy into overbought conditions. Okay, let's talk about resources and tools. So there's obviously a ton of people, you and I are two of them, that everybody can listen to. There are people out there that have their own rules. There are people out there that uh, have strategies that you can follow and you can emulate. What are some of the most reliable resources that you think individual investors should read, listen to, or watch, aside from obviously your books, your podcast, and your blog? And I think the bigger question is, there's a lot of individual investors out there who say, well, I don't have access to tools. I don't have access to the tools that financial professionals have. I don't have a Bloomberg terminal at my desk. I don't have facts that I don't, you name it, right? Do they really need all that stuff? To, to your point about before about the information overload, I think that's the hardest part for people is, is they're trying to drink out of the fire hose and with no filter in place, that's really difficult because there are so many different other avenues. When I, I remember when I was coming up and trying to learn it was more or less books that I could read, right? It, that's how I kind of backfilled my data knowledge and understanding was books. And now you have podcasts and social media and people are giving financial advice on TikTok and there's all these mm -hmm. different <laughs> sources of advice. And I think you can kind of jump from one to the next depending on the mood, right? Like, oh, real estate's been hot lately, so I'm going to follow this real estate expert. And then I'm going to do this. And so I think for for some people, it's it's the idea of getting caught in the middle between there's some people who just say, I'm not going to follow anything and I'm just going to put it on autopilot. And and for most people, that's probably okay. And then there's other people who say, I'm going to follow it all. And that's, that's kind of what you and I do, right? We, we follow stuff on a daily basis. And I think in that sense, it's a little easier to uh, not get as emotional about it because you, you see all this information coming at you all the time and realize like not all of it is actionable and not all of it is, is helpful. I think that's the part, the problem where people get is they get in the middle and then they don't, they're kind of stuck because they think, well, this person sounds smart. I'm going to follow them. Or, oh, wait, they're wrong. I'm going to follow someone else. So I think having that filter in place is is key. And, and for most people, I think it comes down to finding the strategy or advice that fits your personality and your your emotional makeup. Because I, I don't think there's one correct path for everyone to to get wealthy at. But I think there's, there's only a handful of things that you can do that are poor financial advice that can get you into trouble. So I think it, it, a lot of it comes down to finding the the resources and the strategy that, that are helpful enough to you and, and putting that filter in place to understand, again, the stuff that you just shouldn't pay attention to. And, and you know what? this They talk about these kind of investments all the time, but that's just not for me. So I'm just not going to pay attention to that stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, and don't extrapolate it into the future. If you've got somebody who makes a really good call, it doesn't mean they're going to have seven more really good calls. And if you've got somebody who makes a, a wrong call, doesn't mean they're going to be wrong all the time. All of us are going to be wrong sometimes. All of us are going to be right sometimes. And hopefully we're right more often than, than we're wrong. But you're not going to find one guru or one person uh, who's all that much more right than, than somebody else. Yeah. And you have to figure out a way to, to match any advice you receive with your circumstances and your time horizon and your risk profile, because someone could be giving some financial advice that makes sense for them or their followers or their types of investments, but it could, it might not be applicable to you at all. And it could just be interesting and, and not, right. so that's the thing you have to make sure it, it just fits your circumstances too. 
And that that's what social media does, right? There's a ton of information on social media. It might be interesting. It might be eye-catching. It's clickbaity. But is it useful for you? And there was a survey. We did a survey a while back. 91% of Gen Z investors get their information, get their investing information from social media. Do you think... Is that scary to hear? A, a little. It's not, I guess it's not surprising. And on the one mm-hmm. hand, it's good that people have more access to this stuff these days. Uh, I do think it's it's probably easier for young people to get burned, but hopefully they they learn their lessons, which I actually think uh, that's when you want to make your mistakes as a young person because you probably don't have as much capital at stake and, and you're still figuring it out. So so maybe, you know, touching the oven and stovetop and burning your hand a little bit is a, is a good thing and realize like, oh, those aren't the sources of information I should be following. For, for me, coming into the investment world, I when I was a young person in this industry, I, I got caught up in just the people who sounded the smartest. I thought, okay, they have to be the best investors. And there certainly are a lot of really intelligent people with high IQs or good investors. But I think I bought into it too much of, of this person, to your point, this person must be right all the time because listen how smart they are. Like their their forecasts and the way that they talk about the economy and the markets, they, and then you realize after, you know, following some of these people that, oh, wait, you're right. No one is right all the time. And just because this person sounds smart and they're very intellectual and they're very well-spoken doesn't necessarily mean they know the future better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I think for some people, it just comes down to going through that and making your own mistakes and, and learning for yourself how how that's the case. And and unfortunately, I think some people just have to experience that before they can figure out what the right path is for them. Yeah. What do you think is one of the most common mistakes you see retail investors make? I'll, I'll answer that first and give you a second to think about it. When, one of the things that I think is is the most common, and this isn't, this isn't a new mistake. This is something that investors have been doing for decades. It's the the fallacy of familiarity, right? I'm very familiar with Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, I know exactly what those companies do. They're the leaders in the headline. I mean, even airlines, right? So it's this fallacy of, okay, I know exactly what that company is about. And maybe I use that company in my daily life. Therefore, the stock will go up perpetually. (laughs) And what it does is it creates a portfolio that's pretty concentrated. Um, there's not a ton of stuff in there that that maybe you are not exposed to in your daily life. You're missing out on opportunities. And it's this this sort of impression that just because you use it or just because you're familiar with it and everybody around you is familiar with it, that it's a good investment. So that's that's probably the biggest mistake that I see over and over again. I've seen this a lot of times, that that idea with people who buy into their company stock and they put 60% mm-hmm. of their retirement in their own company stock. And they, they think, I work here. I know what's going on, but then they don't realize how concentrated their risk is in this one company. Not only do they work there and it's a source of income, but then that that stock is is a big part of their retirement savings. And if something goes wrong, they could lose their job and a lot of their retirement savings. So no, that's a good one. I think for a lot of people just starting out, one of the hard parts is you you read a good book or a good blog post or hear a good podcast and you think, I've got it all figured out. And I think overconfidence can set in really quick where you, th- you go like, okay, I, the light bulb went off, I have it figured out. And, and I think that that's a problem for, for seasoned investors too. Just like, I, listen, I've been through this crash or this bear market or this bull market, and I think I have it all figured out. So the, the next one is going to be just like the last one. And I think, I, I think that overconfidence can infect both professionals and, and retailers alike. Just, listen, I've studied this. I know what can happen. So if, if X happens in the future, then Y is going to happen. So I'm going to be prepared for it. And Unfortunately, the markets don't always work like that, where sometimes even if things like seems like things are lined up to happen just like they did in the past, uh, the market can throw us a curveball. 
yeah, the market makes makes suckers out of people pretty quickly and yeah. <laughs> pretty easily. And it, and it'll do that. I mean, I've been in this industry almost 20 years now and, and I've been made a sucker many, many times and, and will continue to be made one probably for the rest of my career. It's just, it's just nature of the beast. Okay, you've written about housing a lot recently. I think that that's a topic not only for investors, but just for people in general that l- let's cover it because I know you have some thoughts here. We are obviously in a period where mortgage rates continue to rise, but they're at decade highs. We've got affordability at decade lows. What would you tell a prospective buyer right now? And let's let's assume that person just wants to buy a house. They're not forced into buying a house, right? Some people are forced to relocate for a, a myriad of reasons. Let's say somebody can afford to wait uh, to either buy or sell. What would you tell a buyer? What would you tell a seller? Well, housing is certainly a topic when I write about it, it, it probably garners the most emotional response from people because there's just obviously everyone has to live somewhere. And I think everyone has a thought process on on the housing market in general because they have to buy a rent or, or you know something. Everyone has to live somewhere. And it it's a really, t- I feel for people who are first time home buyers right now because mm-hmm. you know most most people move into a house because it's a stage of life for them. They're, they're not trying to time the housing market like they would buying a stock. Like I'm going to wait for this stock to get really cheap and then I'm going to back up the truck and load up on the shares. Most people don't buy a house like that. They're not looking at different metrics like, you know, the housing price to income ratio or whatever. Most people buy a house because they they start a job or they get married or they finish school or whatever. And it's just that next stage of life for them. And unfortunately, a lot of times it just comes down to timing and luck for people. Like if you would have been getting married and, and, and having some household formation of three years ago, you timed it perfectly and you got a 3% mortgage and housing prices were still relatively reasonable. But if you did it three years later, now housing prices are really high and mortgage rates are really high. And to our talk about market being humbling, I never would have expected that interest rates for mortgages could have gone from 3% to 7.5% in such a short period of time. And then after that happens, we get a little dip in housing prices and then they go right back up to all-time highs again, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what's going to happen to prices in the future, but that has to be extremely frustrating to people who, I'm sure some people said, you know what, I'm going to sit on the sidelines and wait for housing prices to fall 10 or 15 or 20%, and then I'm going to buy. And it hasn't happened yet. Maybe it will in the future, but that it, it's a very tough place. I guess the, the, the advice that I give to most people, regardless of when they're going to buy a house, is just make sure you, you're able to service the debt. You understand all the ancillary costs that come with it, property taxes and HOA fees and insurance and maintenance and upkeep because it's a lot more than just the mortgage. And and then the other thing is just what's your time horizon for living in a house? Because I think for most people, that's the problem is the switching costs can be a lot because in the early years of a loan, you're paying really high levels of interest as opposed to principal. And when you sell your home, you're paying realtor fees and closing costs. And and it's it's a lot of money to sell. So if, if you're in the market for a starter home that I'm going to buy it. And then in three years, I'm going to sell and move up. I think that's a much harder proposition to make these days. A, because there's so few houses on the market right now. So it's going to be hard to find a starter home. And B, because the switching costs are so high. So I think for most people, it probably makes sense to to make sure that you can afford something that you're going to live in for you know seven to 10 years and actually build a little equity as opposed to just trying to flip something, especially with housing prices where they are today. Well, and there's regional differences too, right? I'm I'm in New York, and if you, somebody living in San Francisco, if you're in a really high high rent or even just high priced area of the country, renting is an option, and you know I think it's frowned upon by 
society. It's like you, you're not actually successful or you haven't made it until you own a piece of property, you own a piece of land. But renting in a lot of cases makes more sense. And this might be one of them, especially if you live in one of those areas where everything is is always expensive and right now even particularly more expensive. And frankly, some of those areas, especially in New York, you've got so many cash buyers that they're not even really affected by mortgage rates. Yeah. So the prices stay high because they're continuing to buy. That's the thing that it, there's a lot of peer pressure involved in the housing market. Like you have to buy a mm-hmm. house because it's that logical next step or, or what are you doing? You're paying someone else's mortgage or whatever. That That's the one people always throw at you. But yeah, I just got a question from a guy in San Francisco a couple weeks ago. I wrote about this and he said, listen, my my rent is half of what I'd be paying for my mortgage, but everyone around me is buying a house. And he's like, I, it just seems cheaper to rent for me. What am I What am I doing wrong? Why, why should I feel like I have to buy a house? And I said, no, you, not everyone has to buy a house, right? You have to run the numbers and figure out the circumstances. And I totally agree with you in a high cost of living area, for most people, it's way cheaper to rent and it gives you more flexibility for your career or for your personal life or whatever. So not everyone has to rush in to buy a house just because they think that's the next logical step for them. You have to, yeah, you have to know your your own certain area and what the dynamics are and what your circumstances are. And, and buying a, owning a home is just not for everyone. And I think some people feel like that's the case. Yeah. The last thing I want to cover on this, and I'd love your thoughts on this. I talked about this actually on a panel that I sat on at Future Proof, is we talked about earlier the stories that you hear from other people. And coming out of the financial crisis, there were a lot of stories about people who got houses on the cheap and they flipped them and then they sold them for a profit. And then they used that profit to mortgage their next property and they flipped it and they sold it for another profit. And the story just goes on and on and on. And it turned into what people saw as some kind of magic bullet to just get rich. All you got to do is flip houses, right? Just buy real estate and the real estate value will continue to go up if you improve it a little bit. And it's a foolproof way to make money. And I think the environment that we're in right now is what's going to break some of that apart. This is not a foolproof way to make money. If you're buying a house that's more expensive than it should be, and you're putting in money to fix it up during a time when materials cost more and labor costs more, and then you're trying to flip it and sell it, well, by the time you flip it and sell it, what if prices have fallen? You, you're underwater, right? So talk to me about that. What are, I mean, I'm, I get I get all hopped up about it because whenever I hear somebody saying that that's the solution to, to getting rich is just buying real estate, um, I get really worried. Yeah, and, and obviously real estate can be a, a great investment. There, it, It's the one investment you make where leverage is involved and I think it can be done so in a responsible manner if you're doing it the right way. Or, or it's the one thing where you're getting this huge chunk of cash to, to leverage up. But the, the hurdle rate is so much higher now with seven and a half percent mortgages. And if yeah, if that's your idea of just rolling it over and rolling it over and, and keep borrowing and borrowing, that it's a much higher hurdle rate. And we don't know if I mean you'd assume if we get a recession that you could be able to refinance, but do rates just go back to six percent or you know that's still pretty high. So we really don't know. And there's I, I know plenty of people who uh, have bought rentals in the past, and you hear all these great stories about yeah, building. I, I've I own ten rentals and I'm bringing in all this passive income, but. No one tells you about the the calls you get at three in the morning for the air conditioning broke or the heater mm-hmm. broke and, or I have to replace the roof. And that kind of stuff can eat up a whole year's worth of profit, right? And because it, it's not easy to be the, the manager of the house. And, and if you ha- you're a landlord and you can't find renters for three months, you're, you're out on that income and you're still paying the mortgage. And it's not quite as glamorous as a lot of people make it sound it's, I think for a lot of people, it's it's more of a tangible asset. And they, they think, I can see this house. I know what it is. It makes sense to me. I can get regular income. But, uh, you know, it's it's the stock market is more volatile and you can see the prices on a daily basis in like a house. But 
there's a lot less work involved. You know, you know, you don't have to live under an index fund, right? There, there's more, there, there's, there's <laughs> more emotion, right? There's more emotion involved in, in a house, uh, especially. So, so I think uh, for a lot of people, and there's more concentration risk, the location, especially you're, you're not only at the whims of interest rates and mortgage rates and the general macro economy, but it's your, your local environment too. And there are some local environment, uh, some locations that are seeing housing prices fall, even though nationwide they're doing okay because they got ahead of themselves. So a lot of it depends on where you buy as well. Yeah. Okay. Last, last big question. There are a lot of investors, both young and old who got into investing during the pandemic and just after the pandemic, which means that yes, they've seen kind of a bear market, right? I would call it sort of a cute bear market down 20 to 25%, but they've seen kind of one. They haven't really seen a recession. They haven't really seen an entire business cycle. So what would you tell yourself if you had been one of those newer investors starting out in 2020 or 2021, what would you tell yourself about weathering a possible storm and just getting through a full business cycle? That was tough because that that one year period after the COVID lows to the next year, I think 96% of all stocks were up or something. It felt like it was just shooting fish in a barrel and it was really easy and anything you invested in went up. And if you if you bought highly speculative stuff, it went up even more. And I'm sure you felt like a genius. I think the one thing I try to remind young people is just that you're probably going to experience somewhere between 10 or 12 bear markets through your investing life cycle, depending on how many decades you're investing for, you're going to experience five or six recessions. These things are are a normal part of the system in which we we inhabit. And if you're young and you're saving, your, your biggest asset is your human capital, how much money you're going to make in the future. And you should actually welcome these bear markets and, and make sure that because you want to buy at lower prices and higher dividend yields and lower valuations and all these things, and it's difficult to wrap your mind around that when you're young that, oh, wait, this, these things are actually opportunities for me as opposed to a bad thing because you don't have a lot of money invested in the markets when you're a young person. And most of that money coming forward is going to be your future savings from your paychecks. So getting your mind to understand that in the first couple of decades when you're investing, markets going down are actually a good thing. You just have to make sure that you can weather the storm with your job and continue to save through them. Okay, awesome. Now we're going to do the hot minute. I'm going to ask you three questions, fast of answers as you can give me. First question is, if you could have one redo on a trade in 2023, what would it be? Uh, I went a little boring with this one, but I... I had a chunk of money from a, a sale of another investment. And instead of putting it all into the market, like I probably should have done, I said, you know what? Things are pretty volatile. I'm just going to dollar cost average in over the course of the year. And I'm still doing that. I made a plan. I'm sticking with it. Uh, but boy, I, I would have done much better. And part of that purchase was into the NASDAQ 100, which is up like 40% this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been dollar cost averaging in it dutifully over the course of the year. I probably would have been smarter to just put it all in and, and let the market take it. But so I, I certainly missed out on some gains there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, gold or crypto as a currency volatility hedge? Can I say neither? I don't know. Crypto is, <laughs> you can. You can. Now, crypto is certainly not a a currency volatility hedge. I think as we saw it, it's more of a of a risk asset. Gold is probably uh, better for volatility hedging and doesn't move up as, and down as much as crypto. I'm just I'm curious to see if crypto becomes like the millennial gold in the future. If people look at that as that sort of uh, hedge against system wide whatever. Mm-hmm. That's that's what they're saying. Uh, all right, last one. Favorite book on investing? 
I feel like this one changes for me over the years. I'm a big proponent of studying financial history to understand how booms and busts happen in cycles. And one of my favorite history books on this stuff is called Devil Take the Hindmost by Edward Chancellor. Okay. And it just goes through all the different, the huge bubbles of the past and what happened. And and that's the point we're talking about, about psychology and, and human nature. And it just kind of shows that markets are always different, but the people in human nature are the, the one constant and people always have the ability to take things too far in either direction. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ben. Uh, I think this was tremendously useful for everybody listening. Can you give us an idea of where we can find you, where we can find your books? What's your latest? Yeah, just go to a wealthofcommonsense.com. You can sign up and sign up for the newsletter and, and get something emailed to your inbox every time that I post something. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope everybody enjoyed that as much as I did. A few takeaways. Uh, there were a lot of takeaways from Ben's comments, but a few of the big ones that will stick with me First and foremost, that it's never been a, a better time to be an individual investor. So many different account types available to you, so much data available to you, so many different types of investments, both vehicles and asset classes. It's all there at your fingertips. It's just a matter of sifting through that. And then we talked about investor psychology and sentiment. And part of that is the idea of almost this paralysis of choice that we have. So it's great to have all these options but then you get stuck in how to choose which one is the best for you. And and a lot of times you're doing that during a period where markets don't seem to make a ton of sense because humans are driving it. And Ben talks a lot about investor psychology in all of his work, but the idea of trying to keep it neutral and keep yourself grounded uh, and watch out for the extremes in the market and understand that they are extremes. They don't happen all that often. A lot of it usually does occur somewhere in the middle. So keep your wits about you and not all the data that you get and that's available to you is actionable. And we talked about resources. And again, the idea that there's so much information out there, there are so many people that you could listen to and follow. There are so many books you could read, blogs you could read, podcasts you could listen to, social media accounts you could follow, that investors are in overload. And you need to have a filter in place. And that filter is not necessarily who was right last or who was wrong last. It's the person or the resource that resonates most with you and your situation. Because not everybody is going to be right. No one is going to be right all the time. Or just because somebody's wrong once does not mean they're going to be wrong again in the future every time. So filtering it for something that feels right to you and somebody that aligns with your goals and your strategy. And then lastly, we spent a good deal of time on the housing market. Housing and buying a home can be a very emotional time for a lot of people because a lot of times it's happening in reaction to a big life event or a stage in life. And it's a lot of, unfortunately, what he said, luck and timing. So if you're going through a family formation phase and you want to buy a house right now, unfortunately, you're in a period where mortgage rates are high and affordability is low. So what you need to do is make sure that you completely understand all of the fees that are involved and you completely understand your own time horizon and are really thinking that through. And then one of the things that he and I both agreed on is that renting is always an option. And in some areas, maybe in all areas, there are times when renting makes more sense. And And I would add that particularly if your time frame is short and you're not going to be owning a home for a very long period, renting might be the better option. In a lot of those high cost of living areas, it is quite a bit cheaper. 
So that wraps it up. I hope you all enjoyed that episode and I look very much forward to bringing you part three of this three-part series very soon. For more from me, read my weekly column every Thursday on the SoFi blog or follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Liz Youngstrat. Tune in to the SoFi Daily podcast for five-minute daily episodes covering the top business, economic, and stock market news you need to start your day. The SoFi Daily pod is available on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to check out the SoFi Daily newsletter. You can sign up for the SoFi Daily to receive the latest financial news in your inbox every day. The important part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Carter Wogan, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com slash legal. Listener.